Jim Elliott was a famous missionary uh, down in the Ecuadorian jungles. Uh, he had made contact, him and his team, with a tribe, a very uh, historically dangerous tribe. You can, you can look it up. There was so much stuff going on. There was a trying to extract oil in the region, and any time uh, oil surveyors would come out, this tribe would, would murder them ruthlessly. And uh, amongst other things, uh, Jim Elliott and his, uh, his friends, his fellow missionaries, saw that uh, instead of the countries trying to wipe this tribe out because they're trying to get in there and extract oil, that they would go make friendly contact and share the gospel with them and win them to Christ. And they would uh, become uh, not only, they would not become known as uh, an angry, violent tribe, but they would become known as members of God's family. Uh, As they had made friendly contact in in a few different ways, uh, it culminated in them uh, landing and going into uh, the jungle uh, to the Wahudanis. And while they were there, in their first contact with a large part of the tribe, uh, they were all speared to death by the Wahudani tribe's people. Uh, they weren't heard from, and there's usually a radio transmission that goes out every night as they come back, and as the wives of the men didn't hear back from them, uh, they feared the worst. And their fears were realized when one of their friends flew over the area and saw a beat-up plane, and they saw bodies laying over near it. Uh, Jim's wife, Elizabeth, was uh, given the remains of of her husband. And you can imagine uh, the grief, uh, the animosity, the unrest in the heart of a woman who had lost her husband to a a ruthless uh, group of people. And you would understand if she were the kind of woman who would harbor resentfulness and harbor unforgiveness or, or, or never extend mercy to the Wahudani people, that would sound a lot like uh, what would be the norm in our society and culture, wouldn't it? That isn't how this story ended, however. Elizabeth Elliot, uh, instead of not forgiving, instead of not allowing God's mercy to extend to them, actually moved there actually for years lived with the Wahudani people and led many of them to Christ. You see, the work that her husband was doing to extend the mercy of God to the Wahudanis, Elizabeth took over even at at great pain in her own personal life, recognized something very, very, very important, that God's mercy is not out of reach for any people. That God's mercy is so important that there is nothing that should stop me or you, Elizabeth, or anyone else to extend the mercy of God to other people. Even to this day, as this happened decades and decades ago, even today the mission work in the Ecuadorian tribe of the Wahudanes continues. And many of those people are now sharing the gospel uh, to their families. And now this a tribe is known as a, as a Christian tribe. You see, even in great trials and difficulties, Christians, just like Elizabeth Elliot here, need to do a couple of things, and it's the main point this morning. We need to count ourselves fortunate because of God's mercy in our own lives. 
and that we should labor diligently to display that mercy to others. You have it right there on the screen. That Christians count themselves fortunate because of God's mercy toward us. There is nothing more blessed. There is nothing more gracious. There is nothing more precious to the Christian life than that we have the mercy of God given to us. That mercy given to us, then flowing from the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, does one thing. It causes us to labor diligently to display the same mercy to others. And if we can take a story like Elizabeth Elliot's and say, well, if anybody had the right to not extend mercy to a group of people, it was her. And even she reads scripture and she sees, not even me. And when we read scripture, if we think if there's, if there's one being in the world that, that doesn't have to extend mercy to their enemy, it would be God. And yet we say, not even him, who didn't even spare his own son, that mercy could be extended to his enemies, that they could then be called his friends. You see, we should count ourselves fortunate because of God's mercy in our own life that says, I am no longer God's enemy if I've turned from my sin and I've placed my trust in Christ. I am a friend of God. And friends, if that doesn't spark a desire in your heart to extend that mercy to others, then there's a big problem. There's a big concern. The news this morning in Matthew 5, and if you're not there, I want you to turn there in your Bible. Matthew 5, 7 actually spins this into the positive, right? I say there's a problem if you're not going to extend mercy. If you say that you've received the mercy of God, the unpardonable things that you've done, the reprehensible thing that you've done as an enemy of God, and yet God extends his merciful arm to you to bring you into his family, but yet you who have received much mercy and received much grace are not willing to extend much mercy and extend much grace, I will say there's a great problem. But in our text this morning, it it really puts it in the positive, doesn't it? Matthew 5, 7, blessed, remember that word blessed comes from the word makarios, which means fortunate, happy, and blessed. Fortunate, blessed, happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Isn't that a great truth of the gospel? That happy are those who are merciful, because they will receive mercy. They will receive the mercy of God. Webster's defines mercy as compassion or forbearance shown, especially to an offender or to someone subject to another's power. Isn't that a good, sufficient definition of mercy? Mercy is compassion and forbearance shown, especially to an offender or someone who's subject to the power of another. Right? Mercy is always goes from the greater to the less. Right? Mercy always extends uh, from the greater level to the lesser. Right? From the offended to the offender. That's how mercy works. The Bible defines mercy in much the same way. As a matter of fact, I want you to to zoom in and maybe take some notes here as we get into the text, as we get into some language. I don't want to lose you, but if you catch this, and some of you will, and I hope most of you will, you're going to notice something about mercy and about God's character that leaves us with no other option in the Christian life than to show mercy. If I am a Christian, then I will show mercy. You had if-then statements when you were in second grade, right? If I am a Christian, then I will show mercy. And why? Because of the character of God. And I want to show you that. When the Hebrew Old Testament, you know, the Hebrew Old Testament, the, the one that, 
the prophets had written, that Moses had written. That Old Testament was written in Hebrew for the Hebrews. But throughout time and to the time of Jesus, the most popular language in the world was, was Greek. And most people spoke Koine Greek, common Greek. And so if people wanted to read the Old Testament, they had to have it translated into their language. And the most popular Greek translation of, uh, that was ever written... Uh, and it was actually the Bible of Jesus' day. Uh, for us, and these really, really important for us to understand that Jesus' day, they read, read Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. Now, here's what's important. They have to take all those Hebrew words, and they have to translate them all into Greek. The same thing we do to get an English Bible. And here's what's really important about that. When the scribes were translating from the Hebrew to Greek, they used the word that we see in Matthew 5, 7, mercy. Elieo, they took that word mercy that we see. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That Greek word, what is it? Elieo, say it with me. Elieo, all right? They took this word that's in verse 7, and they translated the Hebrew word hesed with the word Elieo. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew, if you come from a church that talks a little bit about language, you understand that that's a big deal. Right? The word hesed in the Old Testament is so much a part of your Christian faith, and maybe you just didn't realize it. You see, hesed is a hugely important word in the Old Testament because hesed in the Hebrew is the word most often used to describe, to describe God's character. Hesed is the Hebrew word in the Old Testament that was most often used to describe God's character, in particular, his character concerning his love, his compassion, his mercy, his grace, and his forgiveness. Right? That word has it. It's a loaded word. It's a loaded word. It's really important. And the reason it's important in this text is because if you were a Hebrew in Jesus' day, you were reading the Septuagint. You were reading the Greek Old Testament. And when you read, you know, you know verses like this, right? Psalm 51.1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast Love. That word steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. How many times do you hear of God's steadfast love in the Old Testament? Almost every other page. Over and over and over again, we look in the Bible and it says, God, uh, don't keep me away from your steadfast love. You know, judge me according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgression. God, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. That's the Hebrew word hesed. That's what that word hesed means. Now, when the disciples and people in the first century were reading, they would read in, he, in Psalm 51.1, according to your Elieo. According to your Elieo. It wouldn't say Hesed because that's Hebrew. They would translate it into Greek, Elieo. You following me so far? So when the disciples were reading, when, when Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Elieo, they're saying, that's God's has a character of compassion and love and forgiveness and mercy. And so when they're reading this, we're not just thinking of just plain old mercy that, the, that people in the world give to certain extents here and there. We're saying, well, we're talking about God's character here. Right? Blessed are those who show God's character of hesed, his love, mercy, forgiveness, compassion, for they shall receive God's hesed love, his love, mercy, compassion, grace, and forgiveness. You see, this isn't, we're not just talking about if somebody stepped on your toe, go forgive them here. We're talking about God's character. We're talking about who God is. You see, now when we understand that forgiveness, it's not just optional for the Christian. 
Your command is to display the character of God, the Hesed character of God, and you can do it and you will do it because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And abounding in the work of the Spirit, we're going to display the character of God in his love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And that's why the, the psalm I quoted to you, Psalm 51.1, where, where King David has been in great sin. And as he's standing before God in great humility, we talk about the Beatitudes, there was no one who was more you know, poor in spirit. There was no one who was mourning over their sin more and humble before God and hungering and thirsting for God more than David, particularly here when he's living in all the sin and he's coming before God and he said, have mercy on me, God, according to my character. Is that what he said? He said, according to your character, according to your steadfast love, deal with me according to your character and your glory. I want you to deal with me according to the way that you're merciful, not the way that I'm merciful because I'm obviously not merciful. David had murdered someone, had committed adultery, had misled a whole nation, and he appeals to God according to God's character. See the connection here. It's a big deal. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who give, who show, who exemplify the character of God in his mercy, in his hessed love. You see, mercy in effect, and this is a biblical definition, mercy in effect is God's willingness to give you and me what we don't deserve based on his character alone. Mercy in effect is God's willingness to give you and me what we don't deserve based on his character alone. You see, God's mercy is displayed by transferring to Jesus what you and I deserve. That we deserve it, but he gave it to Jesus. We deserve God's justice, his wrath, his judgment. And he transferred that justice, that wrath, that judgment onto Jesus on the cross. He transferred it. And then he offered people his love, his compassion, and his forgiveness. Right? That's mercy through substitution. Right? That I can't let the guilty go. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a text in the Old Testament that multiple times it's repeated that, that God is abounding in steadfast love, in mercy and compassion, but he will by no means clear the guilty. I love that. Love and justice. He's perfectly loving and perfectly just. God's love doesn't mean that he clears the guilty. He does not clear the guilty. If you're guilty, you're guilty. The only hope that the guilty have is to have their guilt substituted for Christ's righteousness. By no means does he clear the guilty. He just has mercy on the guilty when they come to him for forgiveness and he puts their guilt on Jesus. Nobody gets away with sin. Either they will see the wrath and justice of God or they will trust in the wrath of God on Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. You see, this transaction, this, this substitution of mercy is only possible because Jesus took our place in line of God's judgment. That's it. He took our place in line of God's judgment and gave us the righteousness of Christ as the greatest act of mercy in history. You see, we have mercy because of Christ's atonement, his substitution for us. And as we continue to define the biblical concept of mercy, I want you to sum it up this way, point number one. You need to understand mercy as a central feature of the gospel. Understand mercy as a central feature of the gospel. Point number one up on the screen. You should understand mercy as a central feature of the gospel. 
Did you get it up there? There it is. All right. Write that down. In Daniel 9, in verses 8 and 9, Daniel is praying to God. He's in the middle of, uh, of an ungodly nation. They've been exiled. Uh, and he's there praying. And he's praying particularly about the sin and the separation of God's people from Yahweh, from God. And he, and he says this in his prayer to God. He says, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. He said, that, I'm just going to open it up right there. This is what we are. To us belongs open shame. That's mine to own. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Right? He completely owned up to the reality of the fact that he needs mercy. But he says to God, I love, I love this, but to you, God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. He said, we've rebelled. What we deserve is open shame. What we deserve is the justice of God. But he says, but to you, God, belongs. This is who you are. To you belong mercy and forgiveness. I know what we've done. I know what I've done. But yours, to you alone, belongs mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And if I'm going to receive it, it's coming from you. And I love the way that he packaged it because he recognized, he sandwiched it. I'm a sinner. You're gracious and forgiveness. You're, you're gracious and forgiving, and I'm still a sinner. You love that, what he does there? To me belongs open shame. You're merciful and forgiving. We have rebelled against you. That's the proper attitude of the merciful receiving mercy is the fact that I recognize so much and you should recognize so much that we are in need of God's mercy and we are the ones who belong open shame and we're the ones who rebelled against God. And if there's going to be mercy extended, it's going to be from God. I'm not the arbitrator of mercy. Right? I'm not the gateway of mercy. God's the gateway of mercy. And I will never stand in front of the gateway, and I'll never be the arbiter of mercy. That's God's position, as, as Daniel says, to yours and yours alone belong mercy and forgiveness. It's a central feature. It's, it's a centrality. I want you to see that, that mercy isn't just a part of the gospel. You've got to recognize mercy is the gospel. The whole gospel is tied up in the centrality of mercy. And sometimes we can make the gospel about other things, can't we? Sometimes we can make God about other things when it comes to how he relates to us. And we got to make sure that we understand that the central feature of the gospel, the central feature of God's relationship with you and me is mercy. It's like uh, when you have your, your first home, your first permanent home that's yours as an adult. Uh, you love that, don't you? You remember your first home you ever had? You're like, I love it, Right? And there's a lot of reasons why you love your home, isn't it? And a lot of reasons why I love my home, right? You finally have an abode that's yours, right? You tell people, that's my ad address, mine. It's not my parents. It's not my college. It's not my friends. It's my address, right? I got things. I got shaker cabinets, right? I got stuff. I got DIY projects or DIY disasters, depending on who you are. I got, think, look at this home. Man, you got a lawn. Or you got a lawn, whatever, if you're like me. Right? You, got, you got so much. You got this home, and you're like, man, I love this home. You got a place to raise the family. Right? There's all these great things about a home, but you got to remember the central reason why having a home is important. It's a roof over your head. It's a shelter. Because I'm going to tell you what, you don't like that yard so much if there ain't a house sitting on top of it. 
You don't like that house so much if there ain't a roof on it. Okay, you recognize that in its basic form, a home is a roof over your head. And if it doesn't provide you shelter, it is no good. You make the gospel about a lot of things, but if you don't make it about mercy, if the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't primarily about mercy, it's no good because it can't provide me what I need. And that's the forgiveness that comes from God alone. That's why always we got to make sure that when we talk about the gospel, it's a biblical gospel and it's a biblical gospel of mercy because anything less than that isn't the gospel. Anything less than that just won't do because it doesn't fix my relationship with God. You simply put, without mercy, there is no gospel. And without the gospel, there is no salvation from the judgment of God. Maybe you're in here and you're like, I want that. I know I don't deserve it, but I want that. How do I get that? How do I receive mercy? And that is the next thing that we need to think about, right? We've got to define mercy. Okay, I understand what mercy is, Pastor, but how do I get it? Well, if you want to know how to get it, you've got to know who to get it from. Okay, Psalm 86, 15. Again, we see these similar words. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Remember, there's that word hesed, which translated in the Greek Septuagint is the word Elieo, right? When they read it, they say, abounding in mercy, love, forgiveness, compassion, and faithfulness. You see, receiving mercy requires an appeal to the God of mercy, which Scripture uses to explain who God is. You're the God of mercy, Paul says. We've got to recognize that who we're getting mercy from, where mercy comes from. You can't receive Mercy from anyone but God in the way that mercy is effectual, meaningful from God alone. But who's the kind of person that does appeal to God for mercy? That's the question you need to ask. Right? Who gets the mercy of God? Who gets it? Not everybody gets it. Now you're looking at me. Good. Okay. Who gets it? Well, have you been here for the last five weeks? Here are the people who get the mercy of God. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I've got to be poor in, my, poor in spirit. That means I'm pov- impoverished spiritually. I recognize that I can provide nothing. That I have no relationship with God. That I recognize there is no way in me that gets me into the kingdom of heaven apart from the grace of God. Verse 4. Blessed, happy, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning over what? We talked about mourning over sin. Mourning, mourning over the reality that they have no part in the kingdom of God apart from the forgiveness that comes in Christ. Blessed are the meek, the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Who are the people that receive mercy? Remember, it's the humble, right? Because there's only one way mercy works, from the greater to the less. And so if I won't humble myself beneath God, I don't get the mercy of God. Do you recognize that? Do you see how mercy and forgiveness are intertwined? Even as we read earlier, Webster's defines mercy as forbearance and compassion shown especially to an offender, to someone under the power of another. It's exactly how it works, and that's why we have to be humbled before God and subject to God's power and subject to God's authority if we want the mercy of God. And then verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. You want mercy? You have to hunger for the God of mercy, that he would extend mercy to you because he's gracious and forgiving and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, right? 
You got a hunger for that. You got to want that. I want a God that's like that. Because I can go after a lot of idols and a lot of little G gods, and it's not going to get me that. And that's the one thing I have to have in my life is the mercy of God. So who can get mercy? The guilty. That's it. You recognize that. The only people who can get mercy are the guilty. So if you sit here and you say, I'm not guilty before God, no mercy for you. No mercy for you. Mercy is extended to the guilty. Do you know what's extended to those who are guilty but won't admit it? Judgment. Because you won't even admit that you're guilty before God. And then we have to ask, though, maybe you won't admit that you're guilty, but then we have to ask the question, who is guilty? Romans 3, 23. Everybody. Everybody guilty. Everybody. And there's not a single person who isn't guilty. So who is mercy extended to? The penitent. The penitent. Those who are saying, you're God. I'm not. You're perfect. I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you. I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy. Can you write down a verse? Proverbs 28.13. Proverbs 28.13. Proverbs 28, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. You want to hide it? You want to say you're not guilty? You want to run away from it? Great. It's not going to go well for you. That's what Scripture says. But he who confesses, listen to this, right? He who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Love that. You need to put that somewhere. You need to put that somewhere real good to see. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He who confesses them and forsakes them. I love that. Right? There's a lot of people who just say, yeah, I know I'm bad. I know I'm a sinner. Okay, whoever confesses them and forsakes them will obtain mercy. There's a recognition of my sin and a turning from my sin that will obtain mercy, particularly in my relationship with God. And because of God's character, and it always goes back to God's character, doesn't it? Because of God's character, when I recognize and confess my sin and forsake them, I will obtain mercy. And how do I know that? How do I know God's going to deliver? How do I know God's going to do what he says? Because God is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God delights in forgiveness. Have you ever thought about that? God jumps at the opportunity to forgive. Right? You don't believe that. You don't believe in the gospel. Because a God who doesn't jump at the opportunity to forgive does not send his own son to take your place. That sounds like a very zealous forgiveness, a very passionate desire to see forgiveness extended. I will send my son. He will take your place. Nothing says I want to forgive more than saying I'll do it for you. I mean, literally, he's done it all. And what we do is what Proverbs 28, 13 says. We confess and forsake them, turn to Christ as the substitutionary atonement for my sin. He substitutes my sin. He gets his righteousness. I get Because of God's character, we can do this in point number two. Expect God's mercy when you respond to the gospel. Expect God's mercy when you respond to the gospel. Point number two. All right. Ron's giving me a sign. It's opening. It was opening day this week. He was giving me a sign, telling me it was all going to be okay. Praise the Lord. Another uh, scripture to jot down or, or turn there quickly if you can, Ephesians 2, 4 through 8. 
Ephesians 2, 4 through 8. How do I know I can expect God's mercy when I respond? It just sounds so simple. It sounds so easy. If I turn from my sin and place my trust in him, he's going to give me mercy? Well, it is simple, but it isn't easy. Do you know what it looks like to forsake sin? Do you know what it looks like to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him? I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but you're right. The gospel is simple. Ephesians 2, 4 through 8 says it this way. But God, being rich in mercy. There it is right there. We understand God is rich in mercy. Because of the great love which he had loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Did you read that? Can you, can you imagine a God more gracious? Can you imagine a, a God more willing to forgive, more kind and loving that he says this, I am so rich in mercy you're dead. I want to make you alive in Christ. You have no ability to come to me. You're dead, and I'm going to make you alive. And I'm not just going to say, all right, you're alive. Go deal with yourself. Like, I'm going to raise you up and seat you with Christ in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come, he could show everybody the riches of his grace and kindness toward us. He says, you know how kind I am? Come to eternity with me. Look at all these people who are my enemies. Can you imagine? God... The triune God, the heavenly hosts, excluded. Every single other person in eternity, God can look at and say, they were my enemy, they were my enemy, they were my enemy, they were my enemy, and now they're my children. Like, think about that. You want to start talking about what the church should look like? I know we're going to get to that in a minute. But come on. right? We can't forgive people in our own churches, in our own families, and God's in eternity saying, all of these people were my enemies. All these people had their pitchforks out against me. All these people hated me and wanted nothing to do with me, and they were dead, and I wanted to show the immeasurable riches of my kindness in Christ through taking these dead people, making them alive, raising them up here with me, and letting them reign with me. No excuses when it comes to understanding the grace and the immeasurable kindness of God in Christ, because he's rich in mercy. For by grace you have been saved, the final verse. You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. In case you thought you had anything to do with it, you didn't do anything. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God's mercy. Uh, you got to paint a picture here of who God is. Who is he? The character of God displayed. Because if you got to know how we have to live, if you want to know what God expects from us, we got to know who God is we got to know the character of God. Because the character of God is that which he has called us to live by through the power of his Holy Spirit in Christ. And so our kingdom outposts here on earth ought to look a lot like the kingdom of heaven. It's literally the Lord's prayer, isn't it? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so if God is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, then I'll be, that better be the way the church is. Because I can expect God's mercy when I respond to the gospel. Can people expect mercy when they talk to you? Can they expect mercy when they interact with our church, when they go to life group, when they sit in the congregation? We'll get there in a minute. 
So we can expect God's mercy when we respond to the gospel. So, so what's left for me? If you're somebody who said, I thought I was a Christian my whole life, but you know, I, don't, I don't know. Like, what is a Christian? A Christian is somebody who has responded to God through Christ by turning from their sin and placing their trust in Jesus Christ. There is no Christian apart from responding to the gospel of grace. That I turn from my sin and my enmity with you, that I'm an enemy of God, and I turn to Christ... Because now God has placed all the sin for those who would turn from their sin and place their trust in him onto Christ. And so that which I deserve, as I've turned from my sin and placed my trust into Christ, goes to Jesus. We're not universalists, right? We're not saying that Jesus died uh, now that everybody will go to heaven. That's universalism. We, nobody believes, no Orthodox Christian believes that everybody goes to heaven. Who goes to heaven? The people who turn from their sin... And place their trust in Christ. Those who say, I'm an enemy of God, now I want to be a child of God. If you haven't done that, right, that would say, you are not a Christian. And so what is there for you to do when it comes to expect God's mercy when you respond to the gospel? Respond to the gospel. Because you can expect God's mercy. That's what I love, right? The character of God. God wants to forgive you. God delights in his forgiveness. God delights in people who would take him up on the offer that his son's death is sufficient for your sin. God delights in the forgiveness of his enemies. And he wants you to be forgiven. And what you do is turn from your sin and your separation from God and place your trust in him. Expect mercy when you respond to the gospel. What about a Christian? Well, you're positionally righteous, you're justified, but what's left for me? What kind of mercy should I receive? Well, you still need a lot of mercy. I still need a lot of mercy in my life. As a matter of fact, Lamentations 3 says it well in verses 22 and 23. The steadfast, there's that word again. Did you see it? Hesed. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never come to an end. I love that. It didn't didn't stop when you become a Christian. God's mercy in our lives doesn't stop just because we're saved. And God says, I have nothing else to do with you until you come to heaven. No, no. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In Christ, the Christian can understand that God is going to respond to you as a Christian with his mercy every single day. And you ought to revel in it. You ought to desire it. And we're talking about kingdom happiness. There is nobody more kingdom happy than recognize that every single day the mercies of God are new in Christ every single day for me as a believer. And that does still require penitence. It's still not... Penitence in the liturgical Catholic sense, but penitence in the fact that I repent. I'm sorry, God, I messed up. I messed up royally today. And guess what? I know your mercy is so new every day in Christ Jesus. God, how many times are you going to forgive me? How potent is the blood of Christ? How much will you forgive my sins? As much as I laid them on the Son of God. As far as the east is from the west, is what Scripture says, your sins are forgiven and taken from you. Your mercies are new every day in Christ. So it doesn't stop. God's mercy doesn't stop when we're saved. It continues as we are saved, as we are being sanctified, and as we await the the glory of God to be revealed in Christ. Now, I got there prematurely earlier, but we need to understand mercy is not meant to be a a one-way interaction between God and man. It definitely is that, right? And if you don't have that, you got nothing. But when it comes to the life of the local church, There is no one-way transaction with mercy only being between me and God. Mercy 
God fully expects mercy to extend from person to person, particularly, but not exclusively, remember this, particularly, but not exclusively, in God's church. I mean, particularly in God's church, because if you're not going to do it in God's church, it's not happening anywhere else, but not exclusively, because mercy doesn't just extend from Christian to Christian, it ought to extend from Christian to non-Christian. But so many times, churches like to talk about the Christian and the non-Christian. Mm, kingdom outpost. Right? If you can't do it here, it ain't happening nowhere. Right? If we can't do the will of God in heaven right here, it ain't happening out there. And so we, we must be very sure that we are exercising mercy from Christian to Christian in here so that we can practice what we preach out there. And so we must understand that the mercy of the gospel extends from person to person in this room. Now we're starting to step on some toes. That's good. All right, now we're going to learn about showing mercy. Showing mercy. All right, and we talk about mercy. You know, mercy is uh, something that is and isn't cherished in our culture today. Like on one way, like it is, because we all want to, like there's like this uh, um, hyper-femininity in our, in our culture, uh, which is like I need to, I, I want you to know that you're loved. I want you to know that you're cared about. All good, right? But, but the mercy is kind of like it is, but it isn't. Like, yes, we need to show people mercy, but when you look at our culture and the mercy applied, do we see mercy applied in our culture? We do not, okay? So there is this passive idea of merciful as a good characteristic, but it does, it's non-existent in our world and in our culture. And so then we ask, okay, well, it's going to be hard for Christians to do it because if no one else is doing it, how are we going to create that culture? Well, welcome to Christianity throughout all time. Because in the first century, in Roman society, mercy wasn't seen as a passive, if you do it, that's great, if you don't, I understand, like it does in our culture. In Roman culture, it was seen as an anti-virtue. Like, it wasn't like, oh, it's great if you do, it's great if you don't. They said, no, no, if you show mercy, you are weak. So, like, if we have this, like, hyper-femininity culture, they had this hyper-masculine culture, where it's like, if you showed mercy, it's probably because you didn't have the, 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 just the gumption to go do it yourself. Right, that you just didn't have the ability, and so you're saying you're showing mercy just because you don't have a backbone. Okay, so <laughs> opposite ends of the spectrum that our culture there, but it still ends in the same thing, a lack of mercy. And so we got to recognize that it doesn't matter if we're in the first century culture or the culture we live in today. Mercy is not something you see in our culture. It's not something you see uh, applied. You know, and in our culture today, we see a lot of attributes that people desire ethereally. But when we ask, how are we doing on those things, we're going to say, dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. You see, Christians in history have been called to something completely different. Christians in history have been called to clothe themselves with mercy. The Christian worldview of mercy is twofold. Twofold. I want to think about mercy as a Christian. In our world, I have to think about it in twofold. One, I've got to think about it in my relationship with God. Okay? In my relationship with God, when it comes to mercy, the worldview, the way I think about mercy in our world, God's willingness to have mercy on me, in spite of my transgression against him, is the standard function of mercy. So every single time a Christian thinks about mercy, it should be in this way. God has forgiven me in spite of my great, egregious transgression against him, the holy God and the holy king of the universe, and he's forgiven me. That's the standard function of mercy. That's how you understand what mercy looks like from God to us. Now, secondly... You ought to understand mercy in a Christian worldview in the lens of others. And I want you to think about it a couple of ways. When it comes to mercy on others, you have to at least say this one thing. That no one has ever sinned against you more than you have sinned against yourself. 
All right? Anybody want to say amen to that? Okay. No one has ever sinned against you more than you've sinned against yourself. You have caused yourself more problems than anybody on planet Earth ever has, ever will. And to recognize that you give yourself so much mercy, you extend so much mercy to yourself. You say, well, I, I understand. I, I didn't, you know, I know this happened to me, but it, it was because of this, this, and this. You give yourself so many excuses of why you ought to extend mercy to yourself. As a Christian, we ought to recognize that if you have the capacity to have mercy on yourself, you ought to have the capacity to forgive others. Not that it rests on your capacity. This isn't about your capacity. That's just the first part I want you to think about. Secondly, if I can have mercy on myself, if God would have mercy on me, I must have mercy on others. If God can have mercy on me, I must. You see that? Not, not I should or I could or I would, but I must have mercy on others. And you, there are people who object. Hopefully you don't object after that introduction of Jim Elliott's wife. Uh, but, they, but the objection is, what if they don't deserve it? What if they don't deserve it? What if they're guilty and they're unpenitent and they just don't care and I'm not ready? That's the whole point of mercy, isn't it? That is the whole point of mercy. And people may ask, well, not me. I was ready to be forgiven. You were dead. You were ready to be forgiven because Christ made you alive and alive to the fact that you needed to be forgiven. You were dead. You had no capacity to desire forgiveness apart from God making you aware of it. And so the desire for to be forgiven isn't, isn't the only reason that you forgive. You recognize that mercy and forgiveness come from God. And it is something, again, that I'm not going to be a doorkeeper or an arbitrator of. I'm going to be, if I'm a door, I'm going to be an open door for forgiveness and mercy all the time. I'm not closing the door to something that is God's and God's alone. So, what if they don't deserve it? Well, Jesus says this in, in Luke 6, 32 through 33. Luke 6, 32 through 33. And it says this, if you're only loving others who love you, or if you're only doing good to those who do good to you, don't sinners do that? Like, isn't that what sinners do too? And I love this uh, because it's like, yeah, man, like the world does that. Like the world goes out there and understands reciprocity, right? Animals understand reciprocity. There are whole species of animals, old cross species of animals where a bird says, if I go do that for them, uh, okay, I don't have time for this. No, there is a meerkats and birds in, where meerkats are found in Africa uh, where like the meerkats will uh, allow the birds to eat some of their food if the birds will just tell the meerkats that there's a predator coming. Reciprocity. Animals do that. Sinners do that. Sinners understand if I do good to them, they'll do good to me. It's not just about doing good to those who do good. Mercy and forgiveness is the realization that it's from the greater to the less. I'm a sinner. God is perfect. He has mercy on me. And the church in our lives, we got to recognize that I have to love and do good and show mercy to people who don't deserve it. Because when we look in the mirror, no one in this room deserves mercy. No one in this room deserves forgiveness. And so if we base our forgiveness in our church based on who and who doesn't deserve it, we're going to be a corrupt, legalistic, unfruitful church. And it shall not be because we understand the character of God. The bottom line is this, that Christians are a new creation, created in Christ Jesus and dwelt with the Holy Spirit and will, did you hear that? Will produce the character of God in their relationship with others. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. I love the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit is he will produce in you the fruits of the Spirit. Not he, he could, 
If he really wants to, no, no, he will. That's the power of God in Christ, that he will. You are a new creation. He will empower you to produce the fruits of the Spirit. Not that he could, not that he would, not that he should, that he, he will. And when it comes to kingdom happiness in our series, right, a church abounding in the mercy of God towards one another is a church celebrating the gospel in real time. Right, you want to talk about kingdom happiness? There is no more happy church in the world than, a, than we can look around and say, they were my enemy, they were my enemy, they were my enemy, they were my enemy, and now they're my friends. Do you see that? you see how that works? Your will in heaven as it is on earth if God can go around and say, all the world was my enemy, and I won them through my son, and now they're my friends, the least that it can happen is in here, where we all say that we believe in Jesus Christ, and then therefore we ought to have mercy on one another, as God has been merciful with us. You need to say this in point number three. You need to exercise mercy as a central element of Christian community. Exercise mercy as the central element of Christian community. You want to know what Christianity is about? It's about mercy. You want to know what the church family is about? It's about mercy. The mercy of God in Christ and the mercy of us extending it to one another. Jot down one final verse, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. We're talking about, okay, what does a Christian life look like? What does my relationship with other people look like in the, in the church body? Here it is. Put on then as God's chosen one. So we're, we're putting on something. We're doing something. Holy and beloved, put on these things. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also should forgive. Is that what it says? It's not, is it? It says, so you also must forgive. You also must forgive. Where does the qualification there? It's unqualified. It's unconditional. You must forgive. The same way that your forgiveness is unqualified and unconditional in Christ. Our forgiveness, our mercy on others is unqualified and unconditional. Verse 14, and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You want to have perfect harmony? You want to have a kingdom happy church? You're going to have a church full of mercy. Because if kingdom happiness in your life, like we talked about in the first week, is based on your momentary experiential happiness, if happiness in your life is based on something uh, that it can go this way up and down, right, then you're not going to be happy here. Because there's a lot of people in this room that you're going to be in conflict with one another. And if your happiness is based on how happy you are in this moment, you're not going to be happy here. But if your definition of kingdom happiness, makarios, is your position in God's kingdom, your happiness is not based on uh, what's going on in the moment, but on your position in God's kingdom, you're going to be very happy here. Because let me tell you this, we have a lot of conflict here. So much conflict. Like, is that, you hear that from the pulpit? Right. Your pastor wants to let you know, we have conflict. And as I even always say, we welcome conflict in God's house. We just don't keep conflict going in God's house. All right, what we're going to do is we're going to reconcile, we're going to have mercy, we're going to forgive, and we're going to show people in the world, not that this is what it's primarily about, but it is partially about it, the world, what the mercy of God looks like here. We're going to extend the mercy of God to one another because that's who God is, that's his character. So we must forgive. Mercy is not a side benefit of Christian community. All right? Mercy isn't just part of it. Mercy is the central component to Christian community. We are to be merciful. Right, that's our mission, a mission statement up on the wall. We are merciful because God is merciful. Therefore, we must forgive. Uh, 
any successful company and organization has a, uh, has a mission statement. Uh, and the kind of mission statement uh, that drives their purpose and that drives the reason that they exist and function. Uh, Google, their mission statement is this, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. I'm like, they do a good job at that, don't they? Like, Google is like our world. We know, every, we know everything through Google. Like, they literally do their job. And everything Google does revolves around that one purpose. And when their team accomplishes that goal, they're satisfied, they're fulfilled, and they're happy. <clears throat> Luke 6.36 says that our mission as Christians is to be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And everything we do as Christians ought to revolve around sharing the mercy of God, which is sharing the gospel, which is teaching people about the mercy of God extended to them in Christ Jesus, and sharing and extending mercy to one another. We have been forgiven, therefore we must forgive. And those who do are blessed, are fortunate, and they're happy. Let's pray. God, my prayer is that this sermon is penetrating. It penetrates our hearts, uh, that it wounds and heals. Like we, we pray every week that you know, this, this sermon had depth and it had meat and it had a reality that uh, there aren't a lot of optional uh, things that I get to do or not do as a Christian when it comes to ex- displaying the character of God in Christ. If I have the Holy Spirit, if we have the Holy Spirit, God, we will forgive. We must forgive. There is no other option for us. But I just, I think, God, and as I'm praying, and as I pray that our church is praying together in this moment, that we would display your your Hesed love, that that slowed anger, abounding in steadfast love, merciful and compassion, eager to forgive, that that's who you are, and that is who we are as a church family. And so I pray, God, uh, even as we continue growing as a church, as we begin growing in our knowledge of you and in our faith, that you would uh, both teach us and conform us to your image. God, even now as we continue worshiping, that we would sing to you the faithful, perfect, holy, loving, just God in heaven. God, we thank you for this service. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.